Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when the man found it, he went and sold everything in his joy and bought that field. In his joy, because the gospel is actually really good. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everybody, I'm Ken Keefley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. So welcome back to a brand new season of the Christ and Culture podcast. It's going to be a great season. Uh, Dr. Quinn, tell us about our focus for the year. First of all, it's good to be back, and it's good to start this new season. Nathaniel, this is season three. Four. This is season four. <laughs> That's what I said. Four. Season four. Time flies. Um, so I, it's hard to believe we've had that many episodes. But this is season four key, in keeping with the academic year. So school has just started back here at Southeastern, and we are glad to be back behind the microphones. Our theme for this year uh, is Challenges to Being Human. So this is all part of the Templeton Grant that we uh, graciously received uh, now three years ago. We're starting th- the third year, and the entire focus has been on theological anthropology. It's a fancy way of saying what does it mean to be human from a Christian perspective, and so year one considered defining the human being. Year two, which we finished last year, was forming the human being, and so the end of every episode we discussed how does this relate to human formation, and now for year three we're asking questions about challenges to the human being, especially focusing in on things like ethnic identity, race, sexuality, so that being kind of a category. Also thinking about citizenship, so kind of the body politic, broadly speaking. Thinking about technology, so things like transhumanism, um, and a variety of other things uh, like that. So we'll have a lot of fun conversations this year. Yeah, it's amazing how relevant and pertinent this year's subject is, uh, because the whole notion of challenges to what it means to be human, uh, it's on the news every day. How does one find his or her identity? Mm, yeah. uh, do I identify myself according to some political party? Do I identify myself according to my sexual orientation? Mm. Uh, how, do, how do I find my identity? And all of these things are, are components of the total thing that makes us, yeah. makes me me. I don't want to denigrate or deny any one of these components. But for the believer... For the Christian, we find our identity ultimately in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I am whoever God says that I am. Yeah. And, and that is um, one of the great challenges we're having today is uh, accepting that yeah, and, and believing that. So we can, think of it in, we can think of it in a structural sense of what does it mean to be human? So who am I? What am I? But then also there's the directional sense. So And what am I here for? Right. And Jesus answered that very plainly. You're here to love God and love other people. Love, love God with all of who you are and then to love other people. And as a result of that, I tell my students in some of our curriculum, as you guys know, in our undergrad program here at Southeastern, we call it history of ideas or great books kind of curriculum. And I tell students when I teach that class, this class is intended to make even C-SPAN interesting to you. Now, I'm now not that expecting would be an accomplishment. You, I know, yeah. I'm not expecting you to actually turn on C-SPAN or in the UK some kind of uh, ongoing parliamentary discussions and listen with you know popcorn in hand. Um, but I do expect that if, in fact, we take seriously this great command to love God and love neighbor, then every, every conversation, especially every public conversation, when it comes to policy or when it comes to how people are being treated, how people are being governed, uh, what kind of freedoms we have or don't have, etc., every one of those either advance God's way of loving his people 
or it does something to inhibit that way. And so all of a sudden, then everything becomes important. And to some degree, everything can be interesting. And it's directly connected to the, the mission that Christ has called us to. And, and to that point, if we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, then we are to desire and endeavor to bring about flourishing yeah. for our neighbor. That then brings the question, what does it mean to flourish? And mm. we find that uh, we don't all agree on what the good life is. Yeah. Uh, and so those are the kinds of things that we're going to talk about. And in fact, uh, today's uh, focus will fit in very well because this summer at the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, we hosted a panel, and uh, in, in that was back in June, and we had Rachel Gilson, Jason Thacker, Jacob Schatzer, and our own Mark Lederbach. Um, this panel was a marquee group. And when I say marquee, it ended up being a marquee event. Um, if you remember, it, it, it was more than standing room only. We, uh, tragically, unfortunately, there were some who couldn't even get in mm-hmm. because the room was packed. And for good reason. We heard some great conversations about some very important topics by some great panelists. As I mentioned, Rachel Gilson, Jason Thacker, Jacob Schatzer, uh, and our own Mark Lederbach. It, it was a marquee panel. Yeah, and, and in fact, you'll hear more from probably each one of these panelists throughout the year. Jacob Schatzer, in fact, will be our scholar in residence this year. He's a, a good friend of Southeastern, also works and teaches at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Rachel Gilson is a PhD student here, works for uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, formerly known uh, as that, now known as Crew, and works especially at this intersection of gender and sexuality. Jason Thacker, who teaches at Boyce College uh, and also works for the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, particularly with expertise in technology in relation to faith and theology. So, so many fun conversations here. We recorded this discussion uh, while we were at the Southern Baptist Convention back in June. It's a little longer than normal, so bear with us, but I think you'll enjoy the discussions. We titled this panel, Reforming Gen Z, Technology, Sexuality, and Human Formation. So without further ado, enjoy this discussion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give very quick introductions to our, our panelists as well as to Dr. Lederbach, let them tell you a little more about themselves, and then hand over to them. This is, uh, can I, I really want to pick on these guys because they're such good friends. Uh, this is Dr. Jacob Schatzer. He, he serves at Union University. Uh, I'll let him tell you more about him in a minute. Uh, Ms. Rachel Gilson, Jason Thacker, Dr. Mark Lederbach. I'm going to hand Rachel her mic back to her. Jacob, if y'all will just go this way. Tell us uh, kind of who you are, where you're from, what you do your favorite flavor of ice cream, and then Dr. Lederbach will go on from there. Uh, so I'm, I'm Jacob Schatzer. Uh, I'm a member of West Jackson Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. Several of my pastors are here at the SBC, but I don't think any of them are in the room, which I guess means they trust me, which I'll take as a compliment, not that they didn't think it'd be good. But uh, I serve as Associate Provost and Dean of Instruction at Union University, so I work with uh, Gen Z students a lot. I also have four children who roughly fit into uh, that generation. So, uh, yeah. Uh, my name is Rachel. I'm a member of Hope Fellowship Church, and both my pastors are here, which I guess means they distrust me. <laughs> hmm. I serve with crew on the leadership team of theological development and culture, so we think a lot about how to reach Gen Z because they're a major part of the people we're trying to interact with in the gospel. I'm also a PhD student here at Southeastern. 
Well, my name is Jason Thacker, and since we're starting with churches, I'll let you know I'm a member of Sojourn Church North in Goshen, Kentucky. Um, I'm also, we recently just moved a couple months ago where I joined the faculty at Boyce College as an assistant professor of philosophy and ethics. I also serve as a research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission focusing on Christian ethics, human dignity, and technology issues. And I'm Mark Lederbach. I have been teaching at Southeastern for 23 years. I got my uh, doctorate at University of Virginia, and then I was on staff prior to that with Campus Crusade for Christ. So, but I'm the old guy on the group, so I'm going to do a lot of the questions over here. I have three kids, three adult children, and I serve uh, as the professor of ethics, theology, and culture at Southeastern on there. So let me begin, actually, with you guys. Rachel, I'm going to focus on you. You sat in the middle seat there, so you get the first question. I was sat in the middle seat. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to start with you because somehow you seem to have found yourself at the center of some controversial accusations related to same-sex marriage, so-called. And, you know, sadly, in the general culture and really in the subculture that we seem to live in as Christians, we're almost tolerating a climate of something that I personally would describe as kind of a theological or even denominational McCarthyism. There's a little bit of a spirit in the air where someone is guilty until proven innocent based on speculation or conjecture or even an old comment that might have been made years ago taken out of context. So if you would, um, for all of us to think about this, this is nothing new under the sun. Jesus himself was accused of being a glutton and a sinner because he hung out with gluttons and sinners, right? So nothing new under the sun here. But sadly, when this happens, the best we can do is simply state our beliefs and hope that folks will read them exactly as you say them. So let me, let me ask you some specific questions, if you don't mind on that. So first off, you were in a PhD seminar that I was the professor of, and you submitted a paper to me that you wrote on the relationship of marriage to same-sex couples, and then you took that paper and refined it and presented it at ETS. If you don't mind, would you tell us what was the main text that you drove that paper with, and then what were the main conclusions you came to? Yeah, I did my paper on Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 and talked about the impossibility of Christian same-sex marriage, um, focusing on the fact that what Christ and the church are accomplishing in that text are so theologically important and actually so represented throughout Scripture that to say as Christians that we could have a marriage between a man and a man or a woman or a woman would actually completely undermine God's main purpose for marriage, which is to communicate the beautiful picture of the gospel. And so uh, we presented that at ETS, and it was well-received. Okay. So pretty straightforward. Let me ask you some simple, straightforward <laughs> follow-up questions for anybody who's concerned. So biblically speaking, then, who is marriage for? Uh, well, marriage is a creation ordinance that God designed to uh, be experienced between a man and a woman in faithfulness, representing his beautiful, faithful union of his bride. And of course, if we are Christians and we are not married, we're called to the beautiful calling of Christian singleness. Let me follow up again. Um, so if so-called marriage happens in the eyes of the state between people of the same gender, is that actually a marriage in the eyes of God? Yeah, this is where we get into funny terminology when... Um, Two groups of people are using the same word and mean totally different things by it, which happens all the time in human communication. So the state has something that they call marriage. Some of that includes what Christians would call marriage, which is a union between a man and a woman. But others of it include things that God does not call marriage. So uh, colloquially, if we're referring to a same-sex marriage, probably what we mean is a legal contract that the state has set up between two adults. But we're not talking about something that Christian theology has ever recognized as something God blesses or even says exists. Okay, so if the state says they're married, in the eyes of God, they're not. Right, yeah. yeah. It's, the state doesn't have 
the authority to declare what marriage actually is. Okay, all right, good. So beyond this then, when a couple uh, who is the same gender gets so-called married according to the state, what we'll call here a civil union, and it's legally recognized by the, by the federal government, the state government, and then you lead somebody to Christ, what happens there? What, what does discipleship begin to look like? What happens to the union? How would you advise somebody? What, do you th- what are your thoughts on Well, and this isn't a hypothetical question because all the time God is reaching out with the gospel to every person because the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. So there are many people who find themselves in these legal scenarios who encounter Christ, believe in him by faith, and then have some tough, and then have some tough decisions uh, to make but not tough in the sense of whether or not to obey the Lord. Uh, And and obedience has always meant, from the earliest generations of Christianity till now, to a really high sexual ethic. Um, If you think what we say about same-sex sexuality is crazy, just think about everything else Jesus says about sexuality. It's actually a standard that none of us meet without his forgiveness and grace. So the, the appropriate thing is to end that legal engagement and try to figure out how to follow Christ uh, in the aftermath of that, because some of these folks are walking out of relationships they've been developing for decades. Sometimes there are kids involved, and so if we're going to be the kind of people who are sharing the gospel with folks in that scenario, which we are and should be, then we also should be the kind of people who are helping disciples figure out what does it mean to walk forward in faithfulness and provide the support that they need. Good. Excellent. Thank you for that. Jacob or Jason, either one of you guys want to kind of weigh in on some of your thoughts related to this. We're going to circle back to some sexuality questions in a few moments, but just since I've peppered our friend in the middle here, I thought I'd give you guys a chance. Yeah, well, I think, I think she made an excellent point about the importance of clarifying terminology and recognizing that there are all sorts of important words that our culture has co-opted and redefined and is trying to steal. And part of our task is to clarify and, and winsomely reclaim those. Marriage is one of those. I tell students at Union, uh, when you hear anyone making a theological argument that begins with the statement, God is love, so dot, 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 just put your flags up and listen carefully because they might mean something by love that is not at all what we see when we read about the God who is love in Scripture. Like, that's just one of those words that our culture has taken and distorted. And there are many words like that. So this isn't new. It's just particularly inflammatory. So we need to train ourselves to be listeners. And that doesn't mean to just jump to assume people mean the opposite of what we do either. But it requires us to train ourselves to listen carefully, to be good neighbors, to charitably seek to genuinely understand people so that we can disagree where appropriate in love. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the scriptures, at least, that I teach my students is to cultivate uh, humility when we're talking and thinking through these things, especially the centrality of humility uh, to the Christian ethic. I mean, I think of the book of James in James 1.19 where it says to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, and slow to anger. I almost feel like that's written for Twitter sometimes. Like, it, it feels that way, like this idea that we have to speak, we have to be quick to anger instead of quick to listen. And kind of speaking to this idea of defining our terminology, that's crucial in today and moving forward. All of these kind of themes that we're talking about today, from technology to Christian formation to sexuality, there is something about not only defining the terminology, but there's something deeply anthropological about that. Something about what does it mean to be human, and that's why I'm so thankful for Southeastern, for this panel and for this center, kind of focusing on anthropology and recovering that. That is absolutely crucial. The question of what does it mean to be human is at the center of almost every single ethical question we ask today. 
And the, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christ and the sufficiency of scripture is we have an answer to that question. That we are image bearers of the almighty God that he created as distinctly male and female for a specific type of relationship. And he calls us to a specific Christian ethic of way of living. Ethics isn't just some kind of esoteric kind of philosophical discipline. It's the Christian life. It's discipleship. It's what do you do in light of what Christ has already done and who he is. So going back to those deeply anthropological questions, I think helps to frame all of these questions and all of the discussion we're going to talk about today because at the center, it's what does it mean to be human? And we have an answer to that question. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you for that. And in fact, when I'm teaching my ethics classes, one of the things I'm trying to help my students to understand that really whenever someone's dealing with a surface topic in our culture, there's always an underlying worldview that's driving the way the question is even being asked. So even with this particular topic, with same-sex attraction, with same-sex marriage, with transgenderism, the whole thing, underneath every one of these is a worldview. And so we're going to have to kind of think that through. And you've really kind of hit on the core for us is Genesis 1. 26 through 28, and how do we understand the meaning of that? Okay, good. Let me, let me zoom out a little bit back from that question for a little and, and talk about, since the title of this talk is Reforming Gen Z, Technology, Sexuality, and Human Formation. So as we zoom back out a bit, uh, Jacob, let me go to you, if I could. And if you would, would you set the stage a little bit for us? When we say Gen Z, who are we talking about? What's, what is that group of people? And then I'll follow up if yeah, so the, the first thing I, I want to say uh, is I'll echo off of something that, that Jason just said, which is I think it's important for us to start this conversation by remembering that Gen Z are humans created in the image of God <laughs> who are victims of the fall, uh, sometimes in, in their own unique ways because of the cultural environment in which they've grown up but also are, are recipients of common grace in unique ways as well. And I think sometimes when we enter these conversations, especially when we want to do ministry for particular generations, we can be temp tempted to not only oversimplify, uh, which I feel because I don't feel like I line up with the generation that I fall into, but we can talk about that later if you want to. Uh, we, we not only can be tempted to oversimplify, but we can also be tempted to only think about the ways that we think a generation is problematic or broken. And I think that my guess is we're going to talk a lot about that as we talk about the particular challenges of technology and sexuality in this, but I just want to start by reminding us that when we have Gen Z uh, brothers and sisters in our churches or seekers in our churches, we should be looking just as much for for the unique ways that God has gifted them, the unique things that they see and say about God and his world, and not only approach them as, oh, let me minister and show you the thing that you're broken with, even if we do need to think about that. So when we're talking about Gen Z, though, we're talking about uh, uh, people born generally between, you know, the numbers are always a little different on these things, but roughly late 90s through 2015 or so, um, the things you already know, they use screens a lot, they don't understand the Bible very, much, very well, and they don't think highly of church uh, or organized religion or institutions in general. For the most part, life's about being happy, and they define happiness as financial success. This is coming out of research done by Barna and the Impact 360 Institute. They see and embrace diversity and believe that personal feelings dominate and determine things like gender, right? Which I'm, we're looping back again. Uh, but I think another way of thinking about this, those are all like just statements that, that I'm sure aren't a surprise to any of you. But think a little bit about that time period or, or, or people who are born in that time period, major things that maybe have shaped them, right? We, we know that the term worldview can sometimes make us think that we can hit pause on life and back up and just name things that determine worldview and we can like change ours if we name the right things. 
but, but really our worldviews are shaped by things like the stories that we imbibe from our culture, the things that we walk through. And with this generation, we're talking about people who were, were very young or not quite born when the 2008 recession happened. Uh, we're talking about people who watched the chaos of the mid-20-teens politically and institutionally in this country, which has led them to not trust institutions and not to expect good to come from institutions. And also, people who have had some of the most developmental, important deve developmental stages of their lives interrupted by a pandemic. Right? So when you think about their worldview, we can line up and say, oh, they don't know much about the Bible and these things, and that's generally true as a cohort. But when you think about the challenge of being formed through those crises, I think we see something about uh, what they maybe uniquely see and are uniquely sensitive to about the fallen world, but also what they're afraid of, what, what many of us are still afraid of, and where the gospel can meet us there. And I think, in fact, sometimes we can, again, oversimplify and make uh, Gen Z about uh, some of the most obvious challenges, like technology and sexuality, which we will talk about. But I want to make sure that we see that it's about more than that as well. And that's why I have notes, because I wanted to actually read a quote. And it's, it's, it's worth a minute. Uh, this is Isaac Wilkes, who has an article called The Zoomer Question in American Affairs recently, where he's trying to make this argument that the problem with this generation isn't about technology alone. And, and one reason we know that is because if you look at other well-developed Western countries that have the same technology that we have, they do not have the same problems in this generation of young people. So it's not only about the technology, it's something about American culture in particular. He, he says this, in our turning away from life, the generation christened with the albatross of the alphabet's final letter has become a picture of something altogether foreign to the typical condition of youth. Quiet resignation, despair, premature exhaustion, Recent studies of youth well-being have generated data points to this effect so hellish as to strain belief. The CDC reported this February that in 2021, 10% of high school students reported attempting suicide within the previous year, around 20 times the national average. This was not an artifact of the COVID pandemic. The figure for 2019 was 9%. A full quarter of high school girls reported having made a suicide plan while 30% seriously considered attempting suicide. A high schooler may, of course, answer an official questionnaire about suicide in a mood of despair, boredom, fascination, ridicule, or unseriousness. But even taking that into account, a deeper question remains. It's not just about whether they really mean it. Young people, especially girls, seem less attached to the idea of living than anyone can remember. This depth of despair is real, and we are gonna see how it interacts with and touches on issues of technology and sexuality, but it is not as simple as those two areas. And it's not just a, something that's dependent on a generation, but it's on how we have framed American institutions, how we parent, what we trust and don't trust, what we teach our children to trust and not trust, and all sorts of complicated things. It's not gonna be as easy as putting away the cell phones and being sure we marry someone of the opposite sex. That's profound. I, I teach history of ideas, and so we won't go deeply into this here, but let me just say, I would make the argument that the, the patron saint of modern culture is Frederick Nietzsche. And if you know anything about that, there's a heavy dose of nihilism, if you don't know what that term means, basically meaninglessness in the culture on that. So either one of you want to speak to what you're seeing uh, with you with crew students or others on, on related to what Jacob just brought forth? 
I'll just say a lot of, and I appreciate what Jacob's sharing here, because one of the things I think what happens in these conversations about sexuality, and specifically even with technology, is we see it as their problem over there. So there's this us versus them. Now, we, can, we don't have time to get into polarization and tribalization and all of that, but there's this kind of like those people over there. One of the things that, especially in the technology conversation, is that technology is shaping and forming all of us in distinct and unique ways. Long gone, and I think most of us in this room realize technology is not neutral. It has values. It has distinct values. It's actually trying to shape our perspective of the world, maybe our worldview if we want to use that language. It's shaping us how we view God, how we view ourselves as human beings, that anthropological question we've already been speaking to, as well as the world around us. And so this idea that technology almost gives us this power to shape I love how uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor speaks in uh, mimetic versus poetic terms. Now, don't get lost in all the fancy terms. Essentially, what he means is a pre-modern kind of worldview or a pre-modern perspective saw the world as inherent, has inherent value and truth, something fixed, fixed values, uh, standards, God's standards even, that we are to align our lives with. But what technology and the kind of modernity has opened up is this idea that it's poetic. It's this idea that it's moldable, it's malleable, it's shaping, it's something I can control. And technology almost gives us that allure, that power of like being like God. That the old lie in, the, in Genesis 3 about to be like God, that was the great first misinformation, I always say. Because what was true, they were like God. The devil lied to them about their fundamental identity as image bearers of the Almighty God. And in, in this kind of shift with modernity into post-modernity, we can argue about where we are philosophically. We don't have time to do that. But nevertheless, we live in a time where technology has given us the power not only to see the information we want to see, to live in a bubble or to craft and to shape and all of that, but even sexual, sexually in that sense. We think about the pill. We think about surgeries. We think about this idea of controlling our body, shaping us. Um, so it's not this discovered meaning, it's a much more about my identity, my reality, my truth, which is a fundamental kind of shift of what technology does. It shapes us, it gives us this allure of power and control that I think is shaping all of these things. So that's one of the things that I try to when I talk about technology. It's easy to say, well, I just need a five-step plan to fix my relationship with technology, or I should put my phone down, and that kind of stuff. There's a lot more going on here, and technology is not just about your cell phone. It's about biomedical technologies and the whole host of things that give us this allure of power and control that puts us in the driver's seat, the one who can shape and mold truth to what we want rather than this discovered fixed value that's from outside of us. And just remember what Jesus' words in Matthew 22 says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. The movement here is love is an outward reality to push us outside of ourselves. Our culture, especially today, and this is true from Genesis 3 on, but our culture, especially today, wants us to focus inward. The call of the Christian and a distinctly Christian ethic is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself, which is this outward movement. And I think that kind of recovering that can actually help us to shape and to form in all of these different areas a distinctly Christian perspective, a distinctly Christian ethic, albeit even a Christian worldview, that will serve us long into the future because the scriptures are more than sufficient to, to help us to navigate any of the challenges we face. God's word is true, it's trustworthy. And that's something I think we need to recover and to be teaching to the next generation as we remind ourselves, because we need it too.
Good, that's really good. Rachel, I'm going to hold off on your response to that for just a second. So I once heard a friend of mine say that uh, to, to, this is the way a boomer would understand uh, what he just said, is that if you take a hammer and you use a hammer or a sledgehammer, you're not just using the tool. The tool's actually forming the strength of your arm. Your muscles will change the way your body works. So it's similar with a cell phone or a tablet. You're using a tool, but because our minds are plastic in some, in other words, they can be moldable. If you're looking at pornography all the time, it's shaping you. It's not just something you're using, right? So there's something really important on there. So where's hope? I mean, you just referred to some scripture. Where else would you go? Well, I have to say one thing that, uh, so Jacob's uh, really helpful book, Transhumanism in the Image of God, he uses this, he's adapted this idea of um, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We kind of know that adage. He says, and he kind of updates that in line with Marshall McLuhan and others have said that when you have a smartphone with a cell, or when you have a smartphone with a camera, everything looks like a status update. It's shaping us, it's forming us and how we perceive the world around us. So for me, when I'm not only kind of recovering Genesis 1, 2, and 3, this kind of robust nature of the Christian worldview, is but to also go back to like Romans 12. I'm reminded of what Paul says there. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul is not saying if you're conformed. He's saying do not be conformed. This, this sense that you are being conformed, whether you know it or not, you are being shaped and formed. And I would say technology is one of the primary disciplers of our people today. I always say that one of the things that's interesting about this is that our cell phones, I'll say, I know we have Slido and all of that, but most of you have your cell phone on you or in your hand. It's about within about a foot of you, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's the first thing you look at when you wake up. It's the last thing you see when you go to bed. Maybe you're better than I am and you put it in another room, but it's often something we're drawn to. We wonder what's going on. Maybe even now you're like, hey, am I missing something? What's going on? What's on social media, et cetera? That has a deeply formative effect on us. And I think so you go back to this idea, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The spirit is active. The spirit is here. And we're, we should be seeking to not only understand, to slow down and understand what's going on, but then to apply the hope of the gospel and the, the Christian ethic about how God calls us to live loving God and loving our neighbors self. And that's kind of the, some of the scriptures that I think helps to frame up a lot of the challenges we face today, including technology. Good. Excellent. That's very good. So, Rachel, let me now press this back into your job is to help us think, to help crew think about how to engage this whole discussion in, in regard to sex and gender and some of those kind of questions there. So what are some of the main questions high school, college kids are asking now related to sex and gender? Well, they cluster around a lot of different things, which makes sense. Part of the reason that the dominant narratives of gender and sexuality appeal to young people today is because they really try to center their message on justice and authenticity, which are two things that um, come from God, who's the one who founded his throne on justice and righteousness, and um, authenticity, what's well, Christ who said, we need to actually have our inside match our outside and not be whitewashed tombs. So secularism, because it's um, related to Christianity, like a, a kid who rebelled against its parents, <laughs> grabbing all God's stuff and then trying to use it without him, justice and authenticity look really good because, you know, in their pure forms, they are really good. So they think this is a good thing, right? Like justice for the oppressed, this is a good thing. And so when you think about gender and sexuality, 
there are a lot of, it's undeniable that folks in the LGBT community have been mistreated and oppressed. And so there, it's natural for people to think, well, that can't be right. And for Christians, we would say every person is made in the image of God and deserves safety and respect and <laughs> to be left alone in that, in that sense, you know, not harassed. Uh, but, you know, they take justice and move it into directions. We would say that's not where scripture takes it. And they think about authenticity. Well, like, well, it actually can't. Charles Taylor does a great job of describing how this vision of looking inside ourselves, well, originally started with Augustine, right? We look inside ourselves so that we can look up at God, but it got, it got stopped and short-circuited in Western culture. And so now there's this oppressive well, I, I have to go find myself inside myself, which is Christians, we know, the only thing we're going to find inside ourselves is deception and sin and lies. So it's like a dangerous journey to make. But so much of what animates um, Gen Z in terms of these questions is they see justice, they see authenticity, they can feel that there's something right in those things and they're being told a story that this is the way to get those goods so I think part of what we need to do as ministers of the gospel is actually be able to articulate, yes, those two things are very, very good, but you don't understand what you're worshiping. Like they, like defining our terms, God has so much deeper and fuller of a vision of what those things are, and they are found in Christ, and you can't have access to those outside of the person of the Son. So it's... Um, even before we get to things like who should I date or, or, or all these things, I think those goods animate the movement and create a lot of confusion because they're so related to Christian goods, they've just been warped. Okay, let me do a follow-up and then Jacob, I'd love to have you jump in on this because I know you probably have a lot to say there. So what if someone says, well, I just want to be true to myself, right? It's such a popular phrase. Uh, I always think, well, well, what if you're an idiot, right? I mean, you don't, you, you don't want to be true well, to yourself, right? Yeah, I would, uh, I, would, but, I would challenge any of us, who has hurt you more than you? Yeah, fascinating, yeah. Who has made the decisions that have either metaphorically or literally landed you in a ditch? It's yeah. probably you chasing the things that you thought were good. There is a way that looks good to a man, and in the, in the end, it's the way it's death. So we have a longing for justice and authenticity. Authenticity, if you try to find it in yourself, is probably going to lead to despair. And justice has to have its roots in the very nature of God himself, or otherwise it's not justice, it's just my approximation. So let's go back to some of the things you were saying there. This, this innate despair, wax eloquent for us on this. Well, I think one of the, the pieces here that's, that's key to notice is that when we can affirm these elements of what we're after justice is from God, and I love that thing about authenticity in the white. Well, that's that's really good. That's a way that usually I just try. To, yeah, usually I just try to say no. You, the authenticity thing's just weird and messed up. You really don't want to. What does authenticity even mean anymore? But I like that better. So you know, there there is a way in that that we can affirm even that quest to authenticity, right? And 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 that gives us a starting point with this generation to affirm something that is something like common grace at the very least among them. And if, they, if they're believers, it's obviously more than that. Um, but then to demonstrate and show them that what they think gets them that justice and that authenticity actually falls short and in reality is worshiping an idol. And we do that, sure, by doing Bible studies and helping them, them see and, and like explicit teaching, but we also do that by displaying like dynamic families 
and, and parents that make kids actually want to grow up to be parents. They don't always look at their own parents and want to grow up to be parents, but you know, they look around their church. Like, this, this is something that, that everyone in your church can be a part of, even if there's some, someone who would say, oh, well, well I, can't, I can't teach a Bible study to youth. Well, the way you love your wife and, and lead your children, if, if you're in that stage of life, is teaching something to this generation. And I, and I think that we need to find ways as communities to, to show the goodness of that. And then we need to turn around and acknowledge that also when the divorce rate is similar in the church as it is outside the church, and like we can come to understand why maybe they aren't convinced yet that the right answers are in the church. Well, marriage can be a beautiful picture of the gospel when it's lived out in faithfulness and righteousness, and we also need a better vision of singleness in the church because the New Testament has a beautiful vision of singleness. And so when we've got churches that are filled with healthy marriages and healthy singleness, we've got a double vision of what the gospel is because marriage can be a picture of the gospel and a person who is single for the sake of Christ is saying marriage is very good and I'm not going to miss out on the real thing because this is the little pattern but I'm going to the real place and so someone who is single for the sake of Christ is able to say I believe with my whole life in the resurrection and that is also a very good image that our children need to see, which is that both of these callings have dignity and honor in the Lord and communicate beautiful gospel truths to a world that says you are not a real or full person unless you have a romantic partner. And that's a gospel of salvation by romance. It's not the gospel of grace. I don't really want to follow up there because that's, let's just let that sit for a second. But even, I mean, kind of building off of this is also creating a community in which questions are encouraged. I think sometimes we, there are questions that not, shall not be asked, that we don't want to ask, that we don't want to answer these tough questions. But the great thing about the gospel, and especially the scripture, is that, again, it's more than sufficient. And so creating a community of ministering to this next generation, of being, and when I say safe space, I don't mean the kind of cultural kind of lingo with that. I mean a place that people feel welcomed. The people they feel not only not just affirmed in quote who they are or how they feel or present themselves but this idea that they feel loved that they feel like an image bearer of the almighty god that has inherent dignity value and worth and a place that they can come and ask the hard questions because if they're not going to ask you or they're not going to ask their family or those in their church or in community they're going to ask someone the question is who is going to give them that answer they're going to ask Google or ChatGPT and all sorts of things. We already know where that's going to take them. And so being a place to recovering not only this, this deeply kind of gospel focus, but also a deeply biblical sexual ethic, a biblical Christian ethic just broadly, and being a place that we can ask these hard questions. So one of the things I try to encourage my students is to say, look, you can ask hard questions. You can engage difficult sources. You can read things that you don't agree with. Because what's that doing? It's helping you to shape and to be formed in a type of person who can engage, not in it with platitudes, not with like these kind of half-baked ideas or kitschy kind of things, but somebody who can deeply engage and not only engage, but also kind of hold your own. And say, no, I actually do kind of understand philosophy. I do kind of understand some of these bigger questions, and I don't know them perfectly. And to be, and you may sit here and go, man, I don't know all of these things. That's okay. Be a place that says, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but let's go learn together. That will, that can deeply, that can alter someone's entire trajectory in life by the power of the spirit of what he's doing, using you in that moment to be a place of safety and refuge from a culture that's in complete and total chaos. 
to be a place that is a safe place, a safe harbor in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his church, the body, to be able to ask those type of difficult questions. Well, and just real briefly, and recognizing too that you don't just gotta wait for the questions. Sometimes discipleship is asking the questions that they're not ready to ask yet and they're not sure how to formulate yet because teaching them how to ask the questions is teaching them something valuable. Any of you who have children, or if you, okay, I have, I have little kids, all right, well, they're seven through 14, so they're not that little anymore, one's almost bigger than me, but like, there's stuff on commercials, like, I don't care what shows you try to watch, just on commercials, like, that you've got to address, and you've just got to say, you can't wait for your kid to say, what was that? They, they saw it, they might not know what it was, but as a, as a father, I can ask the question, and then I can provide something of an answer, and I've taught them something not just in the answer, I've taught them a lot in the question, how to formulate the question, how the way I ask the question treats the person in the commercial is created in the image of God and not just a problem to be solved or someone to be kept away from or something like that. So we don't just have to wait and hope, oh, what if they ask hard questions? Teach them to ask the questions and be a a place that, that cultivates that because if you don't, if you just wait and you say, oh yeah, any questions are welcome, but we really hope the hard ones don't come, you're kind of communicating that, that, that you're scared that God can't handle the questions. And we're not, right? And the way we answer it, even when we, we feel like our answer is not completely full, we can say things like, I'm not quite sure exactly where that goes, but I know that, that this is what I do know. And going, again, driving back to, to those truths. We're going to get to some of our Slido questions here in just a second, but let me just say one thing. Since I'm the grandpa on there here, I actually have two grandkids. And uh, so um, one of the things we did when our kids were growing up, exactly to your point, is we played a game watching television called Catch the Lie. And simply when a commercial would come up, I would just mute the TV. And for no longer than 30 seconds, because you don't, your kids don't need a, a lecture at that point, you just simply say, hey, Daniel, tell me what the lie was in that commercial. We talk about it that long, and then we just go back to watching the football game. And there's, there's a, a method in that that can really help us just understand our world and help to train the next generation. Francis Schaeffer, if, if you're too young to know that name, everybody my age knows that name. If you don't know that name, read him. Find him and read him. But he said two really important things, and we'll shift then to some of our Slido questions. One is when somebody has a, a perspective on things, one of the best ways to do apologetics or evangelism with them is to, to take the roof off of their idea and look inside of it and see what the end of the game is, right? And when you have a world where there's hopelessness, then really the end of the game is like the existentialist used to say, you either have suicide or you find hope in something bigger. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's just meaninglessness, right? So sometimes it's good to take the roof off of that. And to something Rachel said here, Francis Schaeffer also pointed out to us that the way Christians live is the final apologetic, right? It's the final apologetic. Benjamin, let's turn to some questions here. I'm going to ask, uh, there's a lot of questions related to gender and sexuality. We're going to try to spread our time across different topics, but let me start with the, the two questions that, that have gotten the most attention here are these. I'm, I'm going to hook these together and let y'all respond to them. How would you handle a child or a teen coming into your ministry who wants to use the preferred pronouns, uh, insisting that it's the opposite of their biological gender. So how do you deal with the, the pronouns insisting? Then the other is, how would you navigate conversations with a teen who believes in God, but also thinks that same-sex attraction is okay? So pronouns, and then just being okay with same-sex attraction, but believes in God or confesses the faith. I'll jump on the pronoun one to give them a chance to think, unless you want in first. Okay, so I think two things are really important with that. Uh, one is to recognize that, that we are called to be people of truth. 
And so I do think that the perspective of, hey, just use people's preferred pronouns because then you'll have an opening for the gospel uh, is sacrificing something on the front end that's going to be hard to get back later. At the same time, when someone comes to you and asks you to call them by pronouns that do not match their biological sex, they have just given you a great gift, which is a window into a, dis- a path of despair that they have begun to head down. And when we hear that, we need to not hear that as a challenge. We need to not say, oh, I'll show you. I'm going to double down on pronouns, and I'm going to do the ones you don't like. Maybe find ways to still be a speaker of truth without being antagonistic, right? Now, pronouns are useful in the English language, but they're not absolutely required. Uh, so you can use someone's name an awful lot. Uh, and, and you can sometimes use the pronouns. I'm not saying avoid them either, but I'm, I'm saying that, that you don't have to make it a contest. You don't have to make it bashing them, but recognize like this is a separate gospel in our culture. And when someone says, hey, please call me this, they have told you where their allegiance lies. And you need to pray for that student. And you need to treat them with love. And you need to point them to truth, not just the truth of the pronouns, but you need to get them to the foot of the cross. You need to help them see the reality of sin and not just that particular sin that they're obviously struggling with, the rebellion that they're demonstrating, but be honest about your own rebellion and how God has saved you from that. Like, we're Baptists, right? We can do testimonies still. Like, do that, right? So, so I just think that, that we, there seems to be two reactions of this in the Christian community. That, oh, well, if we're going to love our neighbors, we'll just use their pronouns and then that'll be an end. I don't think, it's never going to be enough, folks. I walked by a billboard in the French Quarter two nights ago, said, gay pride, this month, every month, every year. At least they're honest. That's the end game. It doesn't stop at pronouns until you go with the gospel, right? So it's foolish to think that it will. But at the same time, we don't need to be antagonistic and drive them away. We can seek to honor the truth in them, even as we insist on the truth of even our words, especially our words, which again, remember we're defining more carefully and stuff like that. Rachel, you were going to comment. Do you want to comment on that or can I jump in right there? Do you want to? So just, just for the way I would approach that same thing, very similar in the way that I think the pastoral side is we have to be really careful and at, at the same time, principially, we don't want to give too much away, right? So language is crucial to a culture. So for me, I wouldn't surrender the pronouns, but if if uh, Bruce Jenner wanted me to call him a nickname, Caitlin, I probably would call him Caitlin, but I would also stick with the pronouns because of what it does to culture as a whole. With the, but to your point, why don't you just stick with the first name the whole time and avoid the pronouns altogether? Might pronouns are often second person, or I mean third person, right? Yeah. Talking about someone when they're not around? Maybe we try to avoid that a little bit. I think Scripture speaks to that. So what you'll probably see, if you had more time, you probably you might see four nuanced differences on that particular point because we're all still trying to figure those pieces out along the way there. On that, Rachel, do you want to speak to either that or the? Oh, just add quickly. If you're a parent of a young child, it's pretty important that you not use the preferred pronouns because you might be the only person who's still speaking truth to them, depending on where they are. Did we hit the? Yeah, please do. Sometimes we treat this topic as if it's out there and if it happens, like, I'm just telling you that if you are a Christian on mission for God, you are going to run into image bearers who are in, like, who believe these things or are deceived by these things. And so I just say is it's not just out there and maybe one day kind of this hypothetical ethical kind of test case or something like that, what do you do? Like, it's trivia. It's actually something that I live every single day in my work. 
because I'm hoping by God's grace and I'm actually engaging with people who don't always agree with me. I'm actually on mission. So I say that to say is I have a friend who is part of a council that I am a member of who identifies as a female is in a marriage with a child. And so this is a very real thing. It's not something that's just this hypothetical that we just argue about, what do you do with pronouns? These are real people with real struggles and real lives and real relationships. And I just want that gravity to seek in. That doesn't change our response. We are to speak truth, unadulterated truth, with unadulterated grace. We often talk and sometimes in our circles about compromising truth. That is a very real possibility. We also can also get in sometimes in our circles that we compromise grace. We are to be people of truth and grace, not and or, not capitulating one for the other, not sacrificing one for the other, to be truth and grace because that's modeled in Jesus Christ, our Savior. As we go to, I'm going to see how many questions we can cover. There's about 30 of them. We're not going to get them all, but we'll try to at least. Uh, we could do categories. like Twitter length, but not Twitter belligerence. We can try that. We can try that. Uh, also, if you're on Slido, if you'll click the polls button at the top, um, there's a survey on there that we would love for you guys to fill out. It's really helpful for us to have just to know how the conversations go so that we can improve these things. So please, even as we're talking, if you'll fill out those surveys, it would be helpful. We didn't actually do your second question. Did you want us to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, if you've got a teen who comes up to you and they're um, a disciple and they're saying same-sex attraction is okay, you have to immediately stop them and get definitions. Like, what do you mean by okay? Some of your teens might mean, I don't think gay people should be beat up and bullied, which we would say, yes, we don't think that that should happen either. Uh, some of them might mean, I feel convinced that because I've heard God is love and I heard this other thing that love is love that therefore I should affirm all gay relationships and we would say no that's not a correct interpretation of scripture and you can get like everything in between those positions so if some a teen comes to you and is posing you just need to ask honoring questions to figure out what they mean and typically what we want to try to communicate is that Yes, same-sex attraction is a fallen experience that is properly sin that needs to be repented of, but at the same time, as a same-sex attracted Christian myself, it's not something I walk around all the time like flagellating myself over. It's like, well, like any time any single one of us experiences some temptation, what do we do? Well, we're spirit-informed Christians, so we repent and we turn to the Lord, we say no to the temptation, we say yes to God in Christ. And that means that there is space in the Christian life for people to experience all kinds of things and still find in themselves um, a path by the Spirit towards trusting Christ and making him beautiful. And so if they're saying same-sex attraction is okay, they might just mean, um, do you think God hates me or my friends? Or, you know, you just, you gotta be, you gotta be yeah. clear about what we're talking about. Jason, I want to throw this question at you. It's a simple question. You got a one-word answer. You ready? What is the appropriate age for a child to have a smartphone? I'm just kidding. You can take more 31. than one word. <laughs> There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And I know, I, want to, I know you want, and I want to give you a one-word answer or an age, a magical age. When There are some 13-year-olds that should not have a phone. There are some 48-year-olds who should not have a phone. <laughs> There are some 15-year-olds that deserve a phone, and I wish they were actually on Twitter, even though it's not great, because they're a voice of reason and there's a maturity. So one of the things I would it's not an age, it's actually a, a, a maturity level. 
And so I think that's something we have to say is I want to give you a checklist. I want to give you, I can't. You have to look at an age appropriate. There, again, it, it varies. Um, I'm going to try to withhold a cell phone for the longest time I possibly can. But I also have to train my children how to grow up in a world that God has placed them in, not the one that I wish he placed them in. So knowing that God has gifted us with a wisdom and discernment to navigate these things, you as a parent are the primary discipler of your children. And so there's a, there's a level of, I'm going to stop talking, but the short of it is, is that there's a, a level of knowledge and truth and knowing where your children are and where they're headed and where that path to say, look, I'm going to look, I'm going to try to seek wisdom and discernment rather than a magic age when everything changes. Cause we all know that's not true. Just a quick practical thing on that. If you're looking for a, an option to give your child something that a smartphone gives them, like the ability to call a friend or text an individual but not send pictures or access the internet. There, there are companies like GabBphone, G-A-B-B, which we use with our 13-year-old. Uh, so he has a phone. He can communicate with friends. He's homeschooled. We want him to communicate with friends, right? Uh, but I don't want him to have access to the internet, and he doesn't, right? And, and so, there's again, there's no perfect thing, but there's also some mediating steps. It's not nothing or full-on 24-7 access to the internet, right? So, so we can find some, some creative ways uh, for the appropriate level of maturity of your child. My kids, uh, we tried to use the language that the uh, internet is closer to a battle zone than it is a playground. And so if I'm not going to give you a car till you're 16 to drive to a porn shop, why would I give you a phone that you could drive to a porn shop? Now, you have to just think through the maturity of your kids on that sort of thing. If you're younger than 16 in the room, you're saying, okay, boomer. And I'm saying, I, I get it. Uh, that's, that's not the world we live in, but it is something to think through probably later than the culture wants is the best answer, along with responsibility. Yeah, and having limits on your advices isn't just for kids. I'm a 30, I don't remember how old I am, I'm upper 30s, some, somewhere in there. My wife and I joke about that. I have limits on my phone. I have downtime. I have time where literally social media is and I cannot access it, period. Not because I have a problem per se, it's because I recognize these things are shaping and forming me. So I try to put in artificial limits that my wife has the passcode to my phone. So I'm traveling, she's not here, guess what? I can't access any social media after 8 o'clock, period. And I won't see it until 7.30 in the morning. It's okay if I miss something. How should we navigate the conversation of suicide, self-harm, depression, and anxiety from a biblical perspective? Real fast. I'm the survivor of a brother who took his life 12 years ago. Um, it was totally out of the blue. He was 50 years old on his 50th birthday. He hung himself in, my, in his brand new home. Um, so I would say to all of you, it can happen to anybody. And it's not wrong to ask if you're suspicious. Sometimes we think if we ask, it'll actually make them more prone. It's, it's a total lie. Every psychologist will tell you, no, you need to ask the question and find out if something's going on in there. So um, in those places, enter in. And enter in with boldness. And uh, as we want to say, we'll probably finish. This is a, a, a big, important thing. We have to outthink everything as Christians. God's called us to. But more importantly, perhaps... We have to outlove everything, right? And so in these places with the darkness of the soul, particularly youngsters, uh, to enter into that with them is really, really important. Anybody want to add anything? I think we have time for two more questions um, before we wrap, at least two more questions. Um, one of them, Rachel, I'll throw it to you first, let others respond, but how do you advise, uh, let's just imagine that there's a same-sex couple uh, who are legally married and have a child or have children, but then they come to faith 
or they're wrestling with the faith. Maybe one comes to faith, and now there's children involved. What, what do you do? What do you, what kind of advice would you offer to pastors and ministry leaders on that? Yeah, and this is not a hypothetical. It happens all the time. All the time. It, it happens, maybe not in as much as we'd like it to, because the gospel still needs to make inroads into these communities. It's much trickier when just one person in that uh, couple comes to faith because, well, just as you, as you might guess, right, because the person who has not come to faith is going to see, <laughs> potentially see the person who has become a disciple as like destroying their family. So you've, you've got all kinds of emotional and difficult things. So as a pastoral staff or as a minister, you're trying to figure out the best way you can to just listen and walk and pray and support them as they end that legal arrangement, find different living situations, and also figure out what does it mean for those kids to be cared for. It can be a lot, it can be a lot easier in the cases I know of where, where both people have come to Christ. I know um, there were two women who were in a legal marriage and they had a child and then they, one came to faith and the other one came to faith and they figured it out where they, I think they lived close by and they ended up going to the same church and, you know, their, their report was like, we're actually much closer now as sisters in Christ than we ever were as married people. So I think we need to have faith that the gospel is good news, right? Sometimes we, sometimes we can get embarrassed to ask someone to make such a big life decision because, like, what have we ever given up to follow Jesus? But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when the man found it, he went and sold everything in his joy and bought that field in his joy because the gospel is actually really good. So if you've got someone who's in this situation, there's going to be a lot of difficulty, but if they have really come to Christ, expect there to be joy and that Christ and the Holy Spirit will give them resilience to make tough decisions with wisdom and with integrity, and they just need your support. They need your prayer. They need your, um, your presence. And they need your advice because, you know, especially when you first come to faith, you hardly, you hardly know anything at all. You just, you want to follow the Lord. And so they really, we all need when we first come to the Lord, right? We need seasoned people who love us and have walked with Jesus a long time to give us good advice. Yeah. Last question, and Mark, if you'll respond to this as well. Um, first of all, as we, as we wrap up, on the table just out to the left, there are books uh, from all of our panelists, and I think there may even be, or from most of the panelists, and maybe, oh, they already give them away? Okay, never mind, the books are all gone. You're welcome. <laughs> you got them all. Um, if you want more, uh, Dr. Keith will buy as many as you want. You can talk to him right here. Um, last question. Um, also, I want to mention one book that Jacob has written that we couldn't get here in time is a book on transhumanism. So it relates to the sort of integration of technology into the human being. So I just want you all to know about that, should you be interested in that. Last question is from Slido. Um, what would you want people here, especially those that are most involved in ministry to Gen Z, what would you want them to take away from a panel like this? What may be some of the most important things in your mind that you would want them to prepare for or to be equipped for? I would say just even as you become a more aware of particular ways that this generation struggles, whether that's through technology addiction or through uh, misunderstandings of gender and sexuality, 
don't hyper-focus on the one or two things that you've got figured out and assume that that's the approach to reach every Gen Z student in your ministry, but continue to cultivate uh, an, an attitude of love and listening and, and truth-telling and all, all those things, right? But uh, recognizing that, that the problems, as with any generation, the way that the fall has fractured us is deeper than we ever suspect or notice. So continue to keep an eye out, even as you discover helpful things to, to, to minister to them with. Keep, keep watching for more and don't assume that it's, it's a one-size or two-issue thing to, to help. Oh, well, I really liked what you said way back at the beginning. was talking about seeing the good. And so I would think we should assume if we're ministering to Gen Z brothers and sisters that God has given each of them gifts, uh, that they are meant to use those gifts to serve and build up the church. And so one of the joys you have is to help them identify those gifts and help them to train those gifts so that they can serve God and his people. And we will see beautiful things happen through this generation. Yeah, I'd say it's true with the technology debate, sexuality, really any kind of social ethical type of question. Many of the questions we're facing today feel very new and novel and we feel like we may have to invent new answers. And in some sense, that's true in the sense that they're new in terms of new opportunities. Uh, as I say, it's like uh, expanded moral horizons. Like there's, we can do more things than we once were able to do, like transition our bodies, if you want to use that transition language, or to take a pill to alter a menstruation cycle, or a social media that changes our perception. But at the core, and this is for us and for the next generation and all generations, at the core, the same existential questions are being asked. The same fundamental questions are being asked. What does it mean to be human? Is there a God? And if so, what is he like? What is justice? What is love? Being asked in light of these new opportunities. So I say that is to say is just to be reminded in an event like this that the Bible is more than sufficient to answer those type of questions. The Bible may, you know, Paul may never said AI or social media, but guess what? The principles, the ethical principles still apply because they're true, and it's how God has created the world to work. And so being able to rely on that and to have a quiet confidence, a hopeful confidence to step into those type of questions and realize that the questions this generation's asking and the next and the next and the next are the same fundamental questions that we've always asked as humanity, just in light of new opportunities. So I have that kind of quiet confidence to be able to step in and to answer those questions and to navigate that with people, even as we learn ourselves. Yeah, that's good. Let me just follow up just simply then saying, my favorite definition of evangelism was given by Bill Bright, or my old boss, who founded Campus Crusade, or what's now known as Crew. That definition is this, taking the initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. And I think that's, to your point, every generation needs us to take the initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. But to the Gen Z generation, I would say that is the only and supreme path to joy to people who have a meaningless kind of context you're inviting them into this great treasure it's a pathway to joy so that's probably where we should close well thanks for listening to this week's episode if you enjoyed it we've had three things we'd like for you to do one subscribe to the podcast and two Give us a five-star rating and review. And three, share it with a friend. We'll see you next week.